Hello, and welcome to the Crimes and Witch Demeanors podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Spellman. Welcome to episode two. And I'm going to say it right off the bat. If you left me any feedback, I'm sorry. Um, I recorded this when I recorded episode one. So if you hate me or if you hate something that I'm doing now or I'm going to do later, I apologize. Uh, I haven't received any feedback yet. So I'm just doing my thing. Also, because of that, there's not really an intro, but there is one thing, and that is for all the German names I'm about to mispronounce because YouTube was down and therefore I couldn't look up to pronounce them, I'm sorry. It is Hannes, not Hans. Um, but yeah, that's it. So with that small disclaimer aside, let's just get right into the meat of the episode, shall we? One of the most famous haunted houses in all of Ohio is located on Franklin Boulevard in Cleveland, known as Franklin Castle. This glorious home, though not necessarily a castle, has a very unique architectural style that could only be described as Victorian eclectic. Its stone face and castle turret are strongly reminiscent of Shirley Jackson's Hill House, the book not the poorly adapted Netflix show. However, can Franklin Castle even hold a candle to Hill House? Tales of a family curse, a stern matriarch prone to fits of rage, murder, faked suicides, incest, Nazis, and infanticide, all surround this kingly estate. So, if they ring true, then I guess Hill House has no choice but to bow down. So, here's the legend as it's told more deeply rooted in Cleveland's collective psyche than the stone foundation of Franklin Castle itself. However, later, we'll attempt to uproot the fabrications and sow the seeds of fact. But for now, let us tell the myth of this Hill House wannabe. In 1860, Hans Tiedemann and his wife Louise, immigrants from Germany to Cleveland, Ohio, built their home on a strange triangular plot of land, which eventually became known as Franklin Castle. Tiedemann was an extraordinarily successful bank executive who conducted business in an aggressive, overbearing manner, and it was said that he ruled his home much in the same fashion. In an exuberant display of wealth, Tiedemann built a large mansion on Franklin Boulevard and spared no expense in doing so. Completed in 1861, it was a flashy display of their success. The Tiedemann family, consisting of Hans, Louise, their six children, Ernst, Wilhelmine, August, Emma, Dora, and Albert, along with Hans's mother, Wiebke, happily moved in to their new mansion. However, not long after, in 1881, his eldest daughter, Emma, had died suddenly from diabetes, or so the official coroner's records claim. Emma was known to be a promiscuous young woman and insane to boot, though back in those days, those were seen as one and the same. Despite what the coroner says, those close to the family knew that in a fit of rage, Hans Tiedemann, who grew sick of his daughter's abhorrent antics, murdered her. Due to the wealth and power that Tiedemann possessed, he was able to easily cover up this deed, but it was surely not the last accidental tragedy to occur on Franklin Boulevard. Only two months later, Hans' mother, Wiebke, passed away of what appears to be a broken heart, absolutely distraught over the loss of her beloved granddaughter. In 1883, three more deaths occurred in Franklin Castle, 
all within one week of another. Han's very young children, Ernst, Wilhelmine, and Albert, all under the age of three, died mysteriously, and they were interred at Riverside Cemetery. What fit of rage could have led Hans to murder three of his children in such a short span of time? His wife, Louise, now filled with grief at the death of four of her children, turned to remodeling their home for solace. In a very Winchester Mystery House style, she added a large castle-like turret to the side of the home, created a number of secret passageways and tunnels, most likely to escape the clutches of her murderous husband, constructed a ballroom on the fourth floor, and carved the faces of her dead children in stone, positioning them as gruesome gargoyles on the front steps to ward off evil. With his wife emotionally distraught and distant, Hans sought warmth elsewhere, finding it in one of his servant girls, Rachel. However, this tryst was not to last, and after seeing Hans' violent tendencies, Rachel found love in the arms of another. Rachel and her new lover were quickly engaged to be married, and on Rachel's wedding day, Hans made one last attempt to keep her, and when Rachel refused his advances, Hans, once again, was set into a furious rage. Hans strangled Rachel, and then strung her up in one of the secret passages off the ballroom to make it look like a suicide. Again, Hans got away with murder, and another life was taken within the walls of Franklin Castle. Yet, death at the hands of Hans did not end there. While staying with Hans and Louise, their niece Karen was found in bed with his grandson. Incensed at this discovery, he shot her dead on the spot, and once again arranged to make the scene appear as another suicide. Finally, in 1895, it was time for Louise to face her fate. She refused to die at the hands of her husband, like so many of her children. So Louise both lived and died by the bottle, drinking herself to death. After her passing, Hans Tiedemann took a hiatus to Germany, returning to the States with a new wife, a waitress named Henriette. Hans sold Franklin Castle and moved to a home in Lakewood that he had built an exact replica of his mansion over on Franklin Boulevard. In 1906, both of Hans' remaining children died. Dora, dying from a tragic fall while attending a theater production in Germany, and his last living son, August, died shortly thereafter, leaving Hans with no heir. Two years later, in 1908, after being directly responsible for the deaths of six people, and indirectly responsible for the deaths of an additional two, Karma had finally dealt its hand. While taking an afternoon walk through the park, Hans dropped dead without warning. Locals say that God himself, tired of his wickedness, struck him down. Franklin Castle fell into the hands of a brewer from Buffalo, New York, who rented it to his sister and her six children, before finally selling it to the German Socialist Party in 1921. It was said the Germans were Nazi spies during World War II, even placing a radio antenna atop the home's turret. And during Prohibition, the Germans illegally created liquor, ran a speakeasy, and used Louise's secret tunnels to smuggle their illegal booze. A mass execution was allegedly conducted in a secret room below the home. The Germans owned the home until 1967, when it was sold to a Mr. and Mrs. Romano, who intended on turning the historic house into a restaurant. The day the Romanos moved in, two of their children, twins, came running downstairs and asked if they could have a cookie for their new friend, a little girl dressed in white who just wouldn't stop crying. Thinking an orphan had found her way into the home, Mrs. Romano went upstairs to investigate, but didn't find a soul. 
Was this the ghost of one of the murdered Tiedemann children? The activity didn't stop there. Objects would move on their own, disappearing from one room and showing up inexplicably the next day in another. Voices and music could be heard, but no source could be detected. Two of Romano's grown sons from another marriage had moved into the stately manor. There was room for them there, after all. However, after being at the home for only two weeks, in the dead of night, the blankets were ripped from their beds, and, scared for their lives, they ran out of the house into the front yard. They moved out the next day. The activity only heightened from there. After seeing a woman in a black gown standing on the third-floor turret, looking out the window, Mrs. Romano did not permit her children on the third or fourth floors. Was this woman in black Louise Tiedemann? Vibka? Or perhaps Rachel? Or Karen? The word of Franklin Castle's hauntings spread quickly throughout Cleveland, drawing news reporters and radio hosts eager to get a scoop on the haunted home. While ascending the stairs, one radio host had his recording equipment yanked from his shoulders, which smashed to pieces on the landing. On a separate occasion, another woman, on the exact same spot on the stairs, walked through a cloud of green mist and promptly fainted. The nail in the coffin, so to speak, came when a medium arrived at the house. She warned Mrs. Romano that if they did not move, one of their children would die. And after only five years in the house, they quickly moved. Sadly, moving away from Franklin Castle didn't change their fate. One of the Romano children died regardless. The next owner, Sam Muscatello, planned to turn the house into a church, and while renovating the third floor, discovered a pile of human bones in the walls. The home once again passed hands numerous times, before landing in the hands of Michael Davinko, known to many as Mickey Deans, and Judy Garland's final husband. Once Davinko passed away, the home was sold to Michelle Heimberger, a co-founder of Yahoo!, Sadly, the same fall that she had purchased the home, an arsonist broke into the home and set it ablaze, destroying the interior. Michelle rebuilt the roof, effectively saving the home, before selling it to Charles Millsaps, who planned to turn it into an exclusive club. Like many others before him, his grand plans fell through, and the house was once again sold. The ghostly apparitions of the members of the Tiedemann family still plague Franklin Castle and all of those who dare to live there the toxic energy of Hans Tiedemann's evil deeds looming thick in the air. Franklin Castle seems to give Murder House a run for its money, but what if I told you only the skeleton of the story is true? While we love skeletons on this podcast, we're really here for the meat. And lucky for you, I've got plenty of meat. Yeah, I didn't think about that when I wrote the script, and that's uh, highly inappropriate. I apologize. I meant it like in an Arby's, we've got the meats kind of way, but I, I digress. So here's what I dug up. I actually ended up buying a book on this house that I spent real dollars on. So please, you better appreciate this. The book was called Haunted Franklin Castle by William Kreischke. I can't say it. I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry. And John Myers. It's a really well-researched book. I really enjoyed it. It's very, very historical. A little bit light on the haunting, but that's kind of what we like here. They cite their sources, and they went deep into the archives. Things that I can't do since A, 
this is a pandemic and I can't really go places. And also B, I don't have the money to actually go to archives and I have to do all my research remotely, which is hard, but fun. But I also did some of my own research as well. And my sources will be listed in the show notes as usual and photographs and scans of the newspaper articles and documents that I used will as always be on the podcast Instagram at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. So the version of the story that I told you started off with the very first thing on the absolute wrong foot. I said the house was built in 1860. This is often the date cited, but Franklin Castle wasn't built until 1881. The cornerstone on the house has the wrong date, and even the county's office records give it a construction date of 1867. Luckily, I didn't have to do that property research. The authors of the book did, and it's confirmed. The date is 1881. Now, the death (laughs) we love death. This was well over 100 years ago. So yes, they all did die. That happened. But did they all die in the house? Young Emma did indeed die in the house. She died of diabetes. She wasn't slaughtered by her father. And also that same year, Han's mother also died of natural causes. So the three children that were murdered within like a week of one another, did that happen? Yes and no. So yes, all the children died very, very young, but they did not die within a week of another. But they were all buried within a week of each other. So this is how it happened. Wilhelmine was born in June of 1863, but died at the age of two months from consumption. Ernst was born in December 1869 and died in July of 1870 from meningitis. I actually found the census records from 1870, and sadly, you can see that he was recorded as a member of the household at being only half a year, Uh, but sadly, he died shortly after that census was taken. And then finally, Albert was born in 1873, and then died a few months later from unidentified causes. So yes, three of the children did die, but they didn't die within a week of one another. So how did that misconception start? There's actually a really interesting reason for this, and it kind of reminds me of last episode's thing where the person telling the story was like, yeah, he got this award in 1919. This is a similar situation, because initially they were all buried together on Monroe Street Cemetery. There was a widow named Josephina who bought a plot at Monroe Cemetery for her recently deceased husband. But then she realized like, hey, I might want to be buried with my husband because I love him, but there's no room in the cemetery. So the plot that happened to be next to her husband was the Tiedemann family plot that had the three children already interred there. So she actually asked Hans if she could have the plot, and he obliged because it turns out that Hans was actually kind of a nice guy. So the children were exhumed and all reburied in the new plot at Riverside Cemetery. So what happened is the cemetery records all say that they were buried in 1883, but If you actually went to the gravesite or looked at any other records, you would know that they didn't all die at that time. So that was just another historical misunderstanding, and the reason why all these children are buried there at the same time is the exact opposite of the story. The story says they're there because of an act of cruelty, but they were actually there because of an act of kindness. Hans was actually a very nice guy. There's another story of a Tiedemann relative who moved from Germany that he didn't know about that he would have probably had stay with him because he let German immigrants, even those not of his family, stay at Franklin Castle if they needed help. And this relative of his, sadly, one horrible winter, there was an awful storm. He was stuck outside and he got lost. 
and all of his limbs got frostbite and had to be amputated, and then he died. And then the city was like, oh, you have the same last name as Hans. He's like, he, they, were like, they were like, do you want these remains? And he paid for all his funeral stuff, his burial. I'm not sure if he sent the remains back home to Germany, to his family, or what he did, but he took care of it all. So he really wasn't as terrible as a person that everyone claims he is. So it's really sad that this nice man in history has such a crappy reputation now. And we'll get to why he has a reputation as a vicious murderer a little bit down the line. So yes, um, Hans did remarry a woman named Henriette, or Henrietta, um, but there's no evidence that she was a waitress. His son August actually died first of arteriosclerosis in 1906, which ended up leaving his wife Ella a widow, who Hans was actually very close to, and he put her in his will, and he really cared about her quite a lot. And then Dora, his last remaining child, uh, her death was tragic and rather unexpected. Like her sister, she was also diagnosed with diabetes, and after some time living in the States without improving at all, she traveled to Germany to receive treatment because they had new methods and they were experimenting with things, and she had a lot more faith in the German healthcare. And I guess that's probably still true today. She traveled there with her sons, Walter and Edward Jr., and her husband stayed home to work. His name was Edward as well. Um, so during the holiday season of 1906, her husband, Edward, was supposed to travel to Germany in order to be with them for Christmas. So while Dora was waiting for her husband to visit, she hadn't seen him since her brother's funeral earlier that year. She was really excited and she was preparing for him to come. Her health was improving a lot and she was really hoping to be able to return to Cleveland by New Year's. So one evening in Frankfurt, a few weeks before Edward came to visit, while Edward Jr. and her nurse were sightseeing in Dresden, she decided to attend a vaudeville show with her youngest son, Walter. During the show, Dora excused herself to use the ladies' room and powder her nose or use the bathroom, whatever she had to do. Whatever ladies do in the ladies' room, that's what she went to do. So she left her little son Walter in his seat because he was really enjoying the show. However, during her short journey to the restroom, uh, Dora tripped on her skirt and fell down a flight of stairs and ended up fracturing her hip. So poor little Walter remained in the theater watching the show, wondering what happened to his mom. And poor little Walter waited there all night. We just waited and waited for his mom to come back, and she didn't. And the theater started clearing out, and eventually he was the only one left. This, this is like the saddest image to me. It's just like this poor little kid being left all alone in the theater. And so eventually, people found him was like, oh yeah, your mom, uh, she's like, she's like dying. So they brought him over to the quote, ambulance, which wasn't really an ambulance because there was no hospital in the town that they were staying in. The quote, ambulance was actually just a cart with these really clunky iron wheels. So actually, when they were going down the cobblestone streets there, it actually exacerbated her injury even more. So her hip actually became infected, and her diabetes made things a lot worse, and sadly she died before Christmas. And so she had probably the most tragic death of all. And then Hans. How did Hans die? He did not. He was not struck down by the hand of God in a park. That just did not happen. 
His daughter-in-law, Emma, uh, August's wife, who he cared about, nearly died in a train accident. And then in the days that followed that, he was really shook by that. Because she's one of the only people left in his life that he loves, he lost everyone around him. I feel like he was like the Joe Biden of his time, just like family members dropping like flies before their time, this poor man. So nearly losing Emma really affected him emotionally, but he ended up dying um, in his home with his wife Henriette, right by his side, uh, actually by the same disease that took his son August, arteriosclerosis. So of all the Tiedemann family members, um, I think there was, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven were supposed to have died in the house. There were only two people that died in the house. The body count stands at two after the Tiedemann family. Let's see what else happened there. The second owner, the brewer from Buffalo, I picked the story because it wasn't from my home state, and yet I can't escape a hometown connection. When you're doing anything with, I feel like, Victorian England, what? Victorian America. You can't really escape Buffalo because it was really an economic hub. But so, yes, a brewer from Buffalo technically lived there. But it actually wasn't the brewer that owned the house. So Hans rented the house out to this guy named Carl Strangman, but his sister Louise Mulhauser was the one that actually bought the house. She saw it and she's like, this house is fabulous. I am buying it. So Carl actually wasn't from Buffalo. He actually ended up moving to Buffalo in 1899 in order to purchase the German-American Brewing Company. So here's, uh, I think, an interesting part that's important for the house's history. It said that the next owners were the German Socialist Party, but it actually wasn't. It was actually sold to a prominent doctor named Ulysses Sherman Leroy Shirky, what a mouthful, in 1915. And I have to say, um, I found a picture of Ulysses Sherman Leroy Shirky, and he, he's, he's very handsome. He's a very handsome man. Uh, he looks like Adam Scott, but like a more attractive, like symmetrically faced Adam Scott. He, he's, he's a hottie. Maybe I'll put the picture in the Instagram post. So it actually turns out that Dr. Shirky's wife, Edna, was the first person to ever talk about paranormal experiences in the house. And her particular experience was that her blankets were pulled off of her in the middle of the night. And that seems to be something that actually happens later, because that happened to the Romanos, and that's actually a true story that happened to them. So the house was eventually bought by, please forgive my butchering of this name and every other German name in this podcast episode, the Eintracht Club? I don't know. But they used the, the house, the Franklin Castle, as a clubhouse for German-Americans. They were not the German Socialist Party. They were a group of, like, singers. And while they technically weren't the Socialist Party, when the Romanos moved in, they found a massive portrait of Karl Marx left in one of the, quote, secret rooms, which, by the way, every secret room that is alleged is actually on the blueprints. I know that it was claimed the house was used by Nazi spies, but there's an article that I found from the people that owned the house, the German group, and they actually denounced the acts of Hitler. They published this like op-ed in the newspaper, so they weren't Nazi spies. They actually did a lot, and I think Hans would have been proud because Hans was German, and he brought so many of his family members and helped so many immigrants that's what the German owners of this house did. And they turned the carriage house into like a gymnasium and they did all this great stuff. So there was a nurse who cared for an attorney living in the house during the time that the German 
people owned it. Um, and she used to hear what sounded like a young girl crying, but servants in the home claimed it was probably a cat or a noise from cars on the street. So during the time that the Germans owned the house, Jacob Enns, who was a caretaker there, died on the property in 1943, which means he was actually only the third person to die in the property. The body count now is at three, as opposed to like, I don't know, what it would have been like eight. So the creepy, can we give a cookie to the spooky ghost girl incident with the Romanos definitely happened, but it happened on the fourth floor, not the third floor. Not that it really matters, um, but it happened near the dumbwaiter. And I feel like this dumbwaiter is probably what's cursed in this home. Everything that happens happens around this dumbwaiter, as you will soon see. But it wasn't an isolated incident. This happened for years, it went on. And eventually the kids learned like, oh, I guess we're not supposed to see this girl. So they kind of stopped talking to her, but eventually she disappeared. But to them, they said it wasn't like an imaginary friend. She was real and they talked to her. So the Romanos did a lot of renovations. And while they were doing so, they found a lot of old items that they auctioned off. I don't know if they were able to auction off the giant Karl Marx painting it literally huge it was like it was probably like 10 feet wide so they auctioned off a lot of old items things that allegedly belonged to the Tiedemans including an old rocking chair that belonged to Louise Uh, so they auctioned that off but the person returned it and they're like no thank you um this chair um it, it rocks by itself um so you can have it it's very bold of them to just be like, yeah, so this chair you sold me, it's, it's haunted. I want my money back. So like Edna, the blanket incident did happen, but they didn't exactly move out like the story said. So it also didn't happen just that one time. It didn't happen one time and then they moved out. It happened multiple times to both of Mrs. Romano's sons, Ken and Bill Oakletree. So they stayed in the room on the third floor that used to belong to Louise Tiedemann. It does seem that Louise, so far, is responsible for a lot of the happenings. So the rocking chair, and the woman who cries, I also believe, is on the third floor. But I could be wrong. Don't quote me. The stairs, things did happen on the stairs. So the Romano's daughter just went flying down the stairs and her walker just bouncing along in her little boop, boop, boop. But she was fine, don't worry, she was unscathed. Their live-in babysitter, Karen was pushed down the stairs by an unseen force. And you bet that after she got to the bottom, she was like, I want to talk to your manager. Um, But she actually was pretty injured from the incident. And she moved out shortly after. People say it's because she was horrified. But it turns out that she actually graduated and got a job and moved on with her life. But her name is Karen, which is possibly where people got the Karen, who was the Tiedemann's cousin, who was shot or whatever, came from. Because let's be real, Karen isn't a very German name. So also, that's not where their haunting stories end. This one's horrifying. So their daughter, Dee Dee, her bedroom door would open and shut on its own. And apparently, when she was sitting in her room reading to herself, apparently she was a little bit lazy, and she would just be like, turn the page. And the page would turn on its own, which to me, that's a no. Like, it's cute when Matilda does it, but when your child is like, hey, unknown ghost force, 
Please turn the page. It's a, it's a no for me, dog. Mrs. Romano eventually actually had real paranormal investigators stay in the house for a little while from John Carroll University. And while the students were there, they stayed on the third and fourth floors, the haunted ones. The kids were not allowed up there. And apparently the researchers' rooms had been ransacked at some point and they blamed the kids. But the kids were like, we didn't do it. We're not even allowed up there. When the researchers were there, they were looking through the fourth floor and came across a, quote, secret passage. Again, they're all in the blueprints. They're all there. Right off the ballroom. And they found a painting of a young girl holding a basket of Easter eggs. And the children were like, that's her. Apparently, the Easter egg girl was the girl that they used to see near the dumbwaiter on the fourth floor. Okay, still no idea who that is, but it's possible it could be a painting of Emma, though Emma was a little bit older when she died, but that would be my explanation. So the story about the medium who was like, leave or your child dies, that was false. But sadly, after they moved out, her son did die. He was out playing in front of their new house when he was struck by a car. And that's really tragic. And it sucks again for Mrs. Romano, who had this tragic loss of her child and people try and turn it into this story about how a medium warned her and the ghosts killed her. And it's like, no, this is like a really tragic thing for this family who is still alive. And the real reason why the Romanos ended up leaving Franklin Castle was simply because Cleveland was making some changes to their school systems and her kids would have to be bused very far and she didn't want to do that. So they just ended up moving for the benefit of the children like any sane parent would. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the Romanos' involvement. And then you're probably thinking, what about the bones that were found in the walls by Sam Muscatello? Well, first off, I can tell you Sam Muscatello seems like a shady guy. Um, He clearly seemed to be using the home to make money. He would like give money for tours and stuff. But the reason for the skeleton being there, it was said to be a pretty old skeleton when they brought it to authorities. There's a couple different explanations, but the one that I think makes the most sense is that it was probably an articulated skeleton that belonged to Dr. Shirky. But a lot of people also think that Sam Muscatello planted the bones there because he was trying to drum up publicity for his tours and stuff. This this next story doesn't have to do with ghosts at all, but I found it interesting, and maybe you do too. In April of 1975, there was a benefit being held at Franklin Castle called the Bell Benefit Ball, and it was hosted in part by Reverend Robert T. Began, or Begin. So it was a fundraiser to help individuals charged with nonviolent crimes avoid being detained in the county jail, which was over double its capacity. Their capacity was 300, and there was over 550 inmates there, so the conditions were deplorable. The benefit was held on April 19th, and there was over 300 people that were there partying it up for a great cause. And even though alcohol was being served, technically it wasn't being sold. I guess you could get it for like an extra donation, but they weren't actually selling alcohol. But, you know... Um, the police got wind of it, and they showed up at 10 p.m., and they raided the castle. Over 20 police cars showed up to the scene. Police came in with billy clubs, and some of them were aggressively cocking their shotguns. One man reported that he saw a police officer push a pregnant woman, and another man was literally hurled down the stairs. Um, and many, many individuals that night claimed to be brutalized by police, which, let's be honest is the scariest thing we've heard of yet. 
they were holding this event for these people who were incarcerated to get them out, and then they ended up being raided by the police. Sounds about right. So the house was eventually used for other kind of charity things. It was used as a food distribution center, and they gave people the opportunity to stay there overnight for $15, and all proceeds kind of went to renovating the house further. And this program was run by another reverend, uh, Reverend Timothy Swope. Swope had this obsession with a spirit named Karen who lived in the third floor bedroom, which was previously Louise Tiedemann's. And as we know, Louise seems to be the ghost that haunts the place. So really, it was probably Louise. I don't know where he got Karen from. But they dubbed this room the cold room because it was always 10 degrees cooler than the rest of the house. And the doorknob in the closet in the cold room was removed because people kept getting locked inside of it, which I don't know. Victorian homes don't have large closets. So my question is, A, like, why are you going into the closet? And then B, why are you shutting the door behind you? It just doesn't make sense to me. But Reverend Swope had a sister-in-law who taught belly dancing in the ballroom. And remember when I said that there was someone who was responsible for all these stories of horrendous murder in the Tiedemann house? Guess who's responsible for it? She was. It was her the belly dancing medium. So in the 1980s, all of her stories and allegations were published in newspapers and magazines, and so then the lies quickly spread and seeped into the lore of Cleveland, really kind of like cementing their piece in, quote, history. So yeah, I would, however, love to see a reality show based on the belly dancing medium. Someone please make that happen. So again, as we said, Franklin Castle went through more owners, one of them being Judy Garland's last husband, Michael DeVinco. So here's a long story short. In addition to police brutality, his crimes, his actions are the most haunting, terrifying things that could ever befall a Victorian home. Listen to what this lint ball of a man did. He installed like dividing walls that didn't even completely reach the ceiling, which, what is the point of that? And then... Oh god, and then he put linoleum over the hardwood floors. Linoleum over hardwood floors. But you would think that maybe that's the worst thing he did. It's not, y'all. He installed a fluorescent pink hot tub on the third floor. Fluorescent pink? Look, I like pink as much as the next gay guy. But in a Victorian home, I wouldn't risk pissing off a bunch of German ghosts. You know, ghosts are one thing. German ghosts, they're gonna put their foot down. They're gonna, they're gonna haunt your butt. And he was haunted, so Louise was not pleased. So when he died, the house was eventually sold to Michelle Heimberger. And like we said, sadly, it wasn't for long. But the good thing, Michelle, the first thing she did when she got into that house that home, the house, the first thing she did when she got to the castle, she removed the hot tub. So good for her. She didn't get much done, but she removed the horrid fluorescent pink hot tub. Louise Tiedemann and I, thank you. Shortly after she purchased the home, as we know, um, she had a housewarming party on Halloween, but unfortunately the house party was crashed by a number of locals and they 
kind of just trashed the place. But what happened is one of them ended up unbolting the back door, which was normally always shut and bolted. According to the news article that I read in the Plain Dealer paper, a week later, a homeless man entered the back door and set fire to the house. The fire went up the dumbwaiter and burnt all the way to the top floor. So once again, I think the dumbwaiter is cursed. So that same newspaper article also mentions that one of Michelle's previous guests, it sounds like it was an overnight guest, um, ran out of the house in his underwear because he was horrified because doors were slamming shut on their own and he could hear babies crying all around him, which, no thank you. I think one of the most bone-chilling sounds that I can think of is a baby crying. When you're around babies and they're crying, it's bone chilling because it just like, you hate it. It's just annoying and you want it to stop. But if you're sitting in your home in the middle of the night and a baby just starts crying and you don't have one, I can't think of many things that are more terrifying than that. Because what's more terrifying than finding out that you suddenly have a child that you have to raise? Do you have to feed a ghost child? I have so many questions. So the house went through another pair of owners, but is now owned by an artist, Zach Webb. So he claims to have very vivid dreams when he stays in the house, and he actually paints portraits of the faces that he sees in his dreams. And I can tell you, these paintings are very disturbing. I will try and put them in the Instagram post so you can see them. I tried to scour Reddit to see if I could find anything, but this is a private residence, so... You know, it's kind of hard unless people broke in, which they did because um, I found on eBay for $7,500. If you are interested, you can buy a sign that used to sit in the front door of the house that was like, no trespassing. Someone stole it and uh, now it's for sale and they claim it's cursed. So if you would like a cursed part of the Tiedemann house, there is a weird sign for sale for nearly $8,000. So I guess Ghost Adventures, I think this year, did an episode at Franklin Castle, and I went through the comments, and here is one of them. I will do my best to translate it to English. They said the tunnels down under the castle don't go further than the gate house. Oh my god, punctuation really helps, folks. They said the tunnels down under the castle do not go further than the gatehouse behind the castle. That is a lie. I know they go from the underground part of the castle to A, the lake and B, it connects to some underground tunnels under a restaurant called Massimo's on West 25th and Detroit, downtown, about 20 blocks away. I know, as I have been in them and seen this for myself. Also, they said there were no Nazis. That is also a lie. Many, many, many Nazi families lived there after the war, and these tunnels mysteriously popped up, and so did the German people that bought this place. A real cover-up, if you ask me. There were Nazis, and there are tunnels. Us Clevelands know this. Zach missed out on so much real info. So much real info that Zach missed out on. But that's what we came here for, right? The meat. And so, Zach Baggins, if you want some meat, come and eat your heart out, because I've got it. Because we know what's real and what's not, because that's what we do here on Crimes and Witch Demeanors. So thank you for joining me this week and learning about Franklin Castle. Please follow the podcast on Instagram to see pictures of Franklin Castle, as well as some of the images of the historic sources that I use to do my research. 
If you have any of your own ghost stories or personal experiences, feel free to email them to the podcast at crimesandwitchdemeanors at gmail.com. And if you're a friendly ghost, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And subscribe so you don't miss out on next week's episode on Murder Creek. Yes, that's a real place. And yes, it is filled with murder. So until next time, stay spooky. Thank you.